Welcome to another episode of Studies in Empathy, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring empathy and patient experience. I'm your host, Steph Baer, Senior Director of the Office of Patient Experience here at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm very pleased to have Monica Ramirez. Monica, welcome to Studies in Empathy. Thank you, Steph. Monica Ramirez is a longtime advocate, organizer, social entrepreneur, and attorney fighting to eliminate gender-based violence and secure gender equity. For over two decades, she has fought for the civil and human rights of women, children, workers, as well as the Latinx and immigrant communities. She's been awarded the Harvard Kennedy School's inaugural Gender Equity Changemaker Award, the Feminist Majority's Global Women's Rights Award, James Beard Leadership Award, and was included on Forbes Mexico's 2018 list of the 100 Most Powerful Women, among other distinctions. She's also the founder and president of Justice for Migrant Workers, a nonprofit organization that protects and advances migrant women's rights through education, public awareness, and advocacy. Among Moni's many titles, I'm also glad that I get to call her friend. And we're excited to welcome her here today. Hi there. Thank you. Most important, I get to call you my friend. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. I am so excited that you're giving us some time today. And in full disclosure for our listeners, I think it's important to just share that we've known each other since we were little puppies, 20 years now, uh, met when we were both training to be attorneys back in law school. Yeah, that's hard to believe, 20 years. But we're still really super young. Well, I mean, we started school so young that that's how it happened. (laughs) That's exactly how it happens. (laughs) Here we are. Here we are doing different work than the traditional attorneys. That's right. And I love that about us. I do too. Can you talk to me about what drove you to the work that you now lead and just a little bit more about what it is that you do? Yes. You know, most of the people who think about me and my work, they think about some of the recent work that I'm doing around narrative and culture change. Um, but the roots of my work actually are in my family. I come from a migrant farm worker family. I am based in Fremont, Ohio, where I was born and raised. It's the place where my family settled out of the migrant stream. And I started doing the work that I do because I was really fortunate that my parents taught me from a very young age about the importance of being proud to be from the farm worker community. And at the same time, they taught me about all of the issues that existed for farm workers from the time that they worked in the fields as children until today. And, you know, it's shocking that many of those issues still exist, like uh, low pay and, and widespread sexual harassment and exposure to dangerous pesticides and so many other things. But it was that foundational understanding of the issues impacting farm workers that led me to law school where we first met and um, to my career. And my career has evolved over the years and it's no longer practicing law, as you mentioned, but it's doing a lot of other kinds of advocacy. And, you know, from law school, I created a legal project uh, in Florida serving farm worker women. And that project has now become what is justice for migrant women. It's really amazing and important work. Thank you. Can you talk to me a little bit about like the day-to-day, what, what that looks like in your day-to-day work and how do you advocate for people that, that need all of us to advocate for them? Well, I don't have a regular day-to-day, truthfully, and I don't think any advocate or activist can say that they do because we don't know what is going to be thrown at us at any given day. You know, if the story breaks about something tragic that's happened, we move in the direction that we need to to respond. But you know, most importantly in everything that I do each day, I try to make sure that migrant women and their families, whether they're farm worker women or other migrant women, that they're brought forward, that they're not forgotten in a conversation. So if we're talking about 
a particular policy like the rights of essential workers, I want to make sure that migrant women are centered in that conversation. You know, I had a conversation with someone last week about a big event that was taking place. And I said, well, I'll go if that is an opportunity for me to bring in some of the perspectives of migrant women. So I think that my job principally as an activist and an organizer is to make sure that migrant women are no longer in the shadows because I believe that that is how we will best serve them. And most importantly, my job is to make space so that migrant women can speak for themselves because I am not an expert on their lives. They are the experts on their lives. And my job is to kind of, uh, you know, push through, break through as much as I can so that I can make space so that they can um, express their priorities. And um, I think stuff, probably one of the things that I didn't learn in law school, and, and maybe I missed the class and maybe you learned it, but one of the things I didn't understand when I was training to be a lawyer was that our most important job was not to speak for people. Our most important job was to figure out how to make it possible for people to speak for themselves. And every single day, that's what I do. I try to make sure that that is possible. And that sometimes means getting in arguments with super powerful people or like taking people off of lists that they should be on to make space for migrant women to be on those lists. Um, Whatever it takes, that's what my job is. That is fundamental to empathy. And that's what we talk about here in the clinic and, and what this podcast is about, how we allow space for people, how we connect with people. And I, I didn't learn that in law school either. That wasn't one of our courses. No, I think they, I think they didn't teach us that on purpose. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I also, and that's kind of why the lawyer jokes exist, but I also recognize that empathy is a skill we can learn and empathy is a skill we must learn. How do you find space for, for empathy? How have you developed that muscle in your work? Well, I mean, and and all joking aside, I mean, I really do think that a lot of what we learned in law school and in the practice of law was a lot of it was how do you, the transactions, like what are the transactions that we have in our lives? And so those were, those were very like um, sort of black and white, what's in the contract, what's not in the contract. And so that's different than what we're talking about, because what we're talking about here about empathy, it's, it's the reading between the lines, it's the feelings that put the words to paper, right? It's the underlying emotion that requires us to act to change law or to make law better. Um, and I have always moved that way in the world. You know, I, I move with my heart. And, and some people say that's silly. Like we should be moved or we should use our minds and our minds should make the decision about how we're moving in our work. And, and I actually think that my heart has always been my best compass. And that is the compass that I use in my in my work every single day. And, and I don't ever want that to change because I think that um, when we listen to our hearts, that's when we can hear people most clearly. Well said. As we think about how we listen to our hearts and, and how we find room for it in our work, especially as we talk about some of our vulnerable populations like migrant workers and, and women, how can we think about how we make room for the barriers they're facing so that we can make sure that we give space to overcome that. You talked about making space. How do we help overcome barriers for others? I mean, I think that one of the most important ways is to figure out how to be in community with them directly, right? Mm. Because a lot of times we think that there are people who know and who can tell us what is best for a particular population, but the people who are best positioned to tell us are the people. So I think making space means how do we bring people in? So in the case of of your hospital, like how do you 
bring in immigrant patients for a focus group? How do you bring in Latinx people who maybe don't often come to your community events that you're putting together to really hear from them? Like, why aren't they showing up or how would it be easier for them to show up or, you know, what ideas do they have for the programming? Um, I don't think that happens enough in the world. Like we're not, we're not taking the time to gather, to listen. And I think that if we did, that, that there's so much to learn from the community directly. And so that's, that's where our work is, you know, um, that's how we'll hear about the best, the biggest barriers. So for example, in the farm worker community, you know, there are farm workers all around the Cleveland area. Um, Lake County has a very sizable number of workers who are working as nursery workers. Some of those workers were impacted by the immigration rates that happened a couple of years ago in this area. And they have very legitimate concerns about engaging with systems. And, you know, they're not necessarily going to come to you, especially now unless it's an emergency. So it's also about figuring out, like, how do we get out of our comfort zone and go to the community and show up in the community where they feel comfortable, where they don't feel threatened. And, you know, that's how we'll deal with some of the disparities that exist, you know, for the Latinx community and for immigrants in the Latinx community and immigrants largely in our state and other places. One of the problems that we have is that people don't get care until it's, it's acute care, right? It's like very late because they haven't had the preventative care that they need. And I think that has a lot to do with language barriers, that has a lot to do with socioeconomic barriers, lack of health insurance. Like those are all big systemic issues that we have to take on that are preventing people from getting care. But alongside that, we have to create the environment where people believe that they actually can get care and that people care enough to help them. You raised a lot of important points there that I'm going to want to circle back to some of these. Uh, first up, though, I think you're talking about health equity and health equity is part of justice. In yes, you do justice for migrant workers, for, for women. Well, if you look at health equity as part of justice, how do we make it easier? So you talked about some of the barriers. How do we make it easier, though, to include folks? Well, first of all, I think health systems mm -hmm. have to understand that it isn't as overwhelming as they think it is. Mm. Because I think sometimes my experience with folks in the health um, industry has been that people feel overwhelmed by it. Like, you know, the idea of having interpreters, the idea of having materials in another language, the idea of, of having a, a bilingual outreach person, that feels like a lot, you know, and I think that we have to kind of allow ourselves like to neutralize that because if you feel overwhelmed, just like thinking about what it is going to take to fix the problem, then you can't get to the problem because we get paralyzed, right? So I think we have to we have to neutralize that, and we have to think about it just like you'd think of any other patient's needs. Like, okay, language check, right? Like access to a vehicle check. Like, what are the things that you do for any other patient? So that's one. I think that for um, immigrant community members. Um, in the state of Ohio and in the Cleveland area in particular, we just have to make sure that we're looking for the right interpreters who actually speak the language that people speak so that they're available to help with care. We need to make sure that we're having the materials available in whatever language they speak or read. We can't assume that people read. So we need to make sure that there are materials available in other um, mediums. And I think the more that we can engage with family, the better. Because for many of us, I, I can speak for myself as a Latina, 
it's not just me who's going to go in for the conversation about my care. I'm going to bring my mom and my dad and maybe my cousin. I'm going to bring everybody. If, if it's something serious, I'm going to bring the whole family, literally. And so that isn't something that's traditional. And, and in some cases, people might think that's odd, but we have to understand that different cultures move differently in the world. And and if that is what is required to make people feel comfortable, to have a big enough space where their whole family can come, then we should do that. And I think that and those are kind of simple things that the hospital could do. Those are great points. I had a wonderful intern, Yami, who helped coordinate today. And I was chatting with her about her experience as a, as a child. And she said that when she was young, she would go to appointments with her family and, and translate for them. And, and we're very lucky at the Cleveland Clinic that we have a very robust and supportive global patient services with phenomenal translators. But your point to neutralize some of the inequities and like language and just take care of that is such an important first step. We shouldn't have to rely on children to translate these sensitive conversations. That's right. This is a really easy way to start. It's just ensuring the language meets people where they are. Yeah. And actually I have a really, thank you, Yemi, for your help with this, this podcast. And I have a really important related point to this. It's something that people don't think about when it comes to healthcare. So people might think about having interpreters there as you do, and they're there for the appointments, for the conversations related to what is wrong and what is needed to fix it. But I've had conversations with people who've said like, I remember when I was a little kid and I had to help my mom with her prescriptions and so it's it's even the it's even the medicine. Like, how do you administer the medicine? And if the child the child should not be put in that position, but if that is the case, that people are not going to have language access in their homes to understand how to take their medication or to read the bottle to understand how it should be um, administered, that should be cause for concern. And we have to take steps to make sure that care isn't just when you're seen in the doctor. Care follows them home until they return. Because I've talked to people who've said, I was terrified that I was going to tell my mom the wrong thing, or you know, my parent took the wrong amount of medicine because they didn't know because it was only available in English or because they don't read. So we're talking about health equity. Health equity is from preventative care all the way through treatment. And treatment isn't only the visit, it's the after. It's the, it's the taking the medication and the follow-up and follow-through. I love that point about the scope of health and how you raised earlier that oftentimes we see people in the emergency department when they're acutely sick and they're in need of emergent support. We need to think bigger so that we can keep our communities healthy. And that's a great way to think of it is how can we ensure that preventative to treatment is all covered? Thanks for pushing us in that space. You know, Steph, I had another, I had a conversation recently with somebody about health equity and I want to bring it into the, the space because I think it's relevant here. So we have to think of health equity as beyond direct care, or we have to think about mm -hmm. care as more than just treatment because care is also like, do we care enough to invite our community and to have a conversation about racism do we care enough about our community to have a conversation about belonging and welcoming? Because that's a different kind of care, but it's equally important to our mental and physical health. And so that would be the other thing that I would urge is like, let's not just talk about what is wrong with, you know, some physical ailments that I have. Let's talk about what my heart needs too. And I think this podcast is perfectly positioned to do that. That's exactly, well, that's ex the hope of the podcast is that we're creating conversations so that we're considering empathy in other spaces. And your point to safety 
and ensuring your voice can be heard and that you feel secure enough to, to share it and that we're inviting you in is a really key component of how we show empathy and compassion and make space. I really like that thought. So include people in focus groups, include people in, in outreach, include people in the conversation of feeling like we're a safe environment to engage with, that you're not going to be turned into a system. You... um do a lot of work in your organization. What's some things that the Justice for Migrant Workers is currently focused on and that you want to do in the next couple of years? Well, one of the big focuses of our work right now is on mental health. So during the COVID pandemic, which is ongoing as we know, but in the early months of the pandemic, you know, we were doing these regular meetings with farm worker community members, town halls to, to assess what their needs were. And in each of the meetings that we were having, people were talking to us just about the stress, that, that they were feeling stressed, that they're feeling anxiety, that they had depression, that they were trying to figure out how to manage their children's stress. And it just was a topic that kept coming up over and over again. And so we made the decision to create a project called Healing Voices. Healing Voices is a pilot project that we created to do mental health care uh, groups with farm workers in the state of Florida and California. So we have trained therapists who are doing Zoom therapy sessions, group therapy sessions with farm workers in both of those states. And it was so important. We developed a curriculum and that we held those groups because it also taught us a lot about what will be needed to expand the project, not only to more farm workers across the country, but also to other workers, because we need to treat healthcare as an occupational health and safety issue. It isn't treated that way in this country. So in terms of the next few years, we're not only trying to build out the direct care through these mental health care groups that we're providing through Zoom and eventually in person, but we also need to actually use this as an opportunity to push the federal government to create a new standard, a new occupational health and safety standard on mental health to make sure that when we're thinking about occupational health and safety, we're not only thinking about physical health care, but we're also thinking about their mental health care. So there's this direct care component, the related research that we're doing, and then the advocacy that we're doing with the federal government to create a new standard, that's going to take up a lot of our, our bandwidth as an organization. But we think it's really important because, you know, we believe that the health care that our community receives, including the mental health care, there's a direct correlation to how we show up in our homes, in our communities, and in our workplaces. And we need to address those issues to make sure that we aren't faced with the situation where people are constantly in crisis. You've got an audience right now with the Cleveland Clinic. How can we help you with that platform? What could we do as you're trying to advocate for an expansion of how mental health is looked at from an occupational perspective in the federal government? What could we do to help partner and to help support this sort of effort? I mean, I think that the Cleveland Clinic, you know, is such an esteemed hospital and organization. And I think just having validators to say, yes, that's right. You know, mental health care is directly related to overall health care. You know, mental health is part of our health that we need to be taking care of. And the, and the fact that um, programs exist or should exist to address mental health care will have a positive impact on the overall health of, of a person. Like just having validators like you say that would have a huge impact on the work and the possibility for driving change in that area. Mental health is health. And, and we do agree with that. And I love 
the challenge of how we can find ways to be better validators that you've put before us, because I, I'm going to push our, our teams to think about that too. That's really important. Yeah. You know, Steph, I think the other thing is you all have been holding so much during this pandemic and I want to thank you. I want to thank everyone at the hospital for all that you've been holding because we understand you have been under great stress. And, and I think that more than anyone, healthcare providers can understand the importance of ensuring that there are mental health supports for those who are doing critical work like the work that you're doing. So first, thank you for what you do and for all that you do across the hospital but also, you know, we need to figure out how do we develop more programs? How can there be more Healing Voices projects? Who are the professionals who are in the network who could become partners in the work? Because we have to keep expanding. The direct care is tied to the possibility of having a new rule made. But if a new rule is made, we need to make sure that there are practitioners in place to be able to serve people and provide the help that they need related to their mental health care. It all goes hand in hand. It, it really does. And, and that's a critical point that the healthcare structure in, in, globally, not just here, is had under a lot of stress and has been for a few years. So we also need to make sure that we're keeping our resources healthy and safe and giving the right resilience support to them so they can deliver it to others. And I appreciate that observation of, of how we can all work together in the continuum. I'm wondering, though, just you're, you do a lot of work. How do you refill your bucket? How do you keep yourself healthy and, and not stressed out and, and not overwhelmed? Well, I'm working on it. Aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, um, the, the most important thing for me is to make sure that I have time with my family. Moving back to Ohio was part of my self-care, you know, because I'd been away for 20 years doing my work out in the field and other parts of the country. And I was fortunate to be able to move home near my parents um, so spending time in community is really important. That fills my bucket, but also just doing things that are fun, you know, like, like reading or, or taking an afternoon off or like going out to just hang out by the, the local pool. Like we've got to, we've got to make sure that we never lose sight of the importance of fun. And you're one of the, the, the best people I know when it comes to having fun. So we need to have good friends in our lives like you who can, you know, because we need that balance. And I think sometimes it's hard. We do work that is overwhelming in terms of the kind of human suffering that we see. And um, I think the balance is trying to find ways that we can still find joy, even amid the suffering. Well, that's a note that I, I can't improve upon. I agree. Joy amongst the suffering is, is really the way forward. Is there anything that I did not talk about or ask you today that you want to make sure that we don't lose sight of? Well, it's always important for me for people to remember that farm workers, migrant women, touch our lives every single day. And for anyone who thinks that they don't have anything to do with the food justice movement, that they have no reason to be advocating on behalf of or for the farm worker community members in Ohio or across the country, you're wrong. Farm workers sustain us, literally. And so I would ask for people who are listening to remember that, to talk about that, you know, to lift up the two to three million farm workers who feed us every single day. And in our local communities, find out where your food is coming from and find out who the organizations are and the people in the community are who you can support because we need that. That's how we're going to continue to make sure that things improve for farm workers across our country. Thank you for what you do. 
It's always wonderful to, to catch up with you. Thank you. And it's so wonderful to catch up with you. And congrats on this really important platform that you've created. This concludes the Studies in Empathy podcast. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, my.clevelandclinic.org forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the Studies in Empathy podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.